We continue in our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning, 1 Thessalonians. We arrive at chapter 3 today in our study, 1 Thessalonians 3. While you find that, I just want to remind you of something that is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a, a passage that is a unique window into Paul's life experience, the Apostle Paul. It's that familiar passage, you know, where uh, the apostle outlines some of what he was forced to deal with, all because of his calling to preach the gospel. Let me read just uh, these three verses, 25, 26, and 27 from 2 Corinthians 11. Just listen to this. Three times, Paul writes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep, meaning the water. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. I mean, what a list. What an experience. But what interests me the most is what he says in the next verse, verse 28. He adds a thought about what he dealt with every day related to the churches that he had helped to plant. Here's verse 28. Apart from such external things, everything in that list, apart from all that, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That's how the New American Standard and the Legacy Study Bible as well both translate a particular Greek term, merimna. They translate it concern. Paul says this pressure of the concern that I have for all the churches. The King James translates it with the word care, the care that I have in my heart for all the churches. The Greek term itself includes the idea of being Uh, divided in your heart and drawn all kinds of different directions. So we might even throw in the word, English word, distraction to help capture part of the nuance. But I want you to listen to how the ESV translates it. Paul writes, and apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That translation is also legitimate. All those terms help us understand what he was dealing with. But but what does he mean when he says that he had that extreme level of concern or care for or even anxiety over, in the best sense of that word, the churches? Well, let me throw in another English word. I think perhaps the English term that helps us understand the point even more clearly is the term burden. Burden. That's what he meant. Every day, Paul carried in his heart a great burden over the converts in the churches of the various cities where he had ministered. Now, in today's passage, we confirm that he felt that way about the church in Thessalonica. He was burdened about something. His great concern was not over their finances. His great burden was not over their physical health. The biggest issue of burden on his heart was the state of their faith. 
their faith. Now, in our study of 1 Thessalonians so far, we have seen that Paul was very grateful for that church there. They were a, it was a good church. He was encouraged by what he had heard about them. He definitely loved them. We've seen that, and he longed to be with them, to fellowship with them. And yet, still, he was burdened about them when it came to this one topic, their faith. And as we will see, his forced separation from the Thessalonians, you know, he was forced out of that city, that forced separation was just intensifying this burden, intensifying his pastoral concern. Now, also last time, we saw that Paul and his co-workers had made plans to go visit the city. But Paul told us in chapter 2 that those plans had been hindered or frustrated by satanic interference. And so that reality prompted Paul then to wonder about the Thessalonians, to wonder if maybe Satan had also been successful in influencing them somehow. He was so burdened about it, he decided to send Timothy back there to find out what was going on. Now, the entire chapter 3 functions as a unit, and it can be broken down into three sections, and we won't look at all of it today, but just so you'll know, the three sections are this. Number one, the strategic mission. That's verses 1 through 5. Section number two, the encouraging report, verses 6 through 8. And then the last section, verses 9 through 13, the intercessory prayer. So today we'll cover that first section Let's look at verses 1 to 5 together this morning. Section 1, the strategic mission. Now, there are some facets about this mission, the strategic mission, that surface here that we're going to look at. Here's the first one. We're going to note together, first of all, the circumstances of the mission. The circumstances of the mission. Verse 1, therefore, when he could endure it, No longer. Stop there. I want you to know that the chapter break here is a very arbitrary one, as many chapter breaks are. So the term, therefore, is important. Therefore, specifically links what Paul has just said in chapter 2 with what he's saying now. What he had just said was that those Thessalonian believers were his glory and his joy. He even said they were my crown. Therefore, because of that, he now writes what he says now in verse 1, that he could endure separation from them no longer. In other words, Paul did not want to continue in the dark concerning how his converts were doing, how they were faring. He loved them. And as I noted, he desired to fellowship with them. But it was not just some sort of sentimental fellowship that he was interested in. More than that, he wanted to see the Thessalonians continue to grow and mature spiritually when it came to their faith. And that is the normal burden of any man with a pastoral's heart, pastor's heart. He's concerned about the spiritual condition of his people. Listen to what he told the Corinthians. Chapter 12, verse 15 of 2 Corinthians, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. That's what we care about. 
Well, since Paul could no longer bear up under the weight of his burden, his concern for the church, he took action. And that action meant a great sacrifice on Paul's part. But that just proves his love. Love includes that. Love includes sacrifice for others. Love includes the commitment to meet the needs of others, to put the needs above, of others above your own. And that always leads then to sacrifice. And here was the sacrifice Paul was making, verse 1. We thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. Now, the apostle is using the pronoun we here as just a polite way to refer to himself. We know that from the context. That happens at times in Scripture. Just so you'll know, it's called an epistolary we. It's a polite way to refer to self. Paul was speaking about himself being alone, truly alone. Now, I mentioned he's in Athens, so I think at this point it would be helpful just to review his travel history for a moment. And this is what we find in Acts chapter 17. In Acts 17, we're told there that after he had left Thessalonica, and as we know, he was forced out of Thessalonica by those who were opposing his ministry there and the ministry of the other missionaries, Silas and Timothy. After he left Thessalonica, forced out of there, he went to Berea. After he was forced out of Berea, Acts 17 says he arrived at Athens without Timothy and Silas at first, but Silas and Timothy did eventually join Paul there in Athens. But then Silas evidently returned to Macedonia to do some ministry. It's not specifically mentioned by Luke in the Acts narrative, but that's typical of the book of Acts. It's just the nature of the book of Acts. It's a narrative that does not include all the details of all the comings and goings of of the various people who appear in it which says something about the author, Luke. The concern of Luke was not to chronicle every event. So the omission of some movements of the characters does not surprise us at all. But we can piece things together and conclude that Silas was not there then at some point. And so that left Timothy and Paul together in Athens. And yet, Paul was burdened about the Thessalonians. So verse 2 coming up in a moment is going to confirm to us that his decision was to send Timothy back there to Thessalonica. Timothy, the young man who was this precious friend to Paul, this young man who was his most trusted and faithful disciple. And that then did leave Paul literally alone in this pagan city of Athens. Now, the verb translated left behind means abandoned. That's how he felt. It also could be translated forsaken. It's a word that expresses a sense of desolation, which is even reinforced more by adding that emphatic term alone. Left behind, alone. So this certainly expresses how serious Paul's separation from his friends was. Even though he could have benefited greatly by having them there to assist him and to fellowship with them in Athens. Still, Paul thought it best to send his colleagues away to do ministry for the well-being of others, sending Timothy specifically to Thessalonica, and that meant he then had to face all those cultured pagan philosophers in Athens and idolaters in Athens all by himself himself. 
And that's what we find in Acts chapter 17. And yet, as bad as that was, it was more palatable to him to be alone in Athens than to leave the Thessalonians alone. Well, as I noted, verse 2 confirms then Paul's decision to send his cherished co-worker to them. Verse 2, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. By the way, we find in the New Testament that Paul more than once would send Timothy like this other places. This is very possibly the first time Paul did that. But we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says to the Corinthians, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He wrote to the Philippians, the church at Philippi, in chapter 2, verse 19 of Philippians, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly. Paul ministered in the city of Ephesus himself. Timothy was there. Paul left left Timothy there. So 1 Timothy 1 verse 3 says that, I urged you, Timothy, upon my departure, remain on at Ephesus. So either sending Timothy or leaving Timothy. And that's the situation here related to Thessalonica. Paul sent him back to that city. But notice what we see about Paul's regard for Timothy. It's how he refers to him. He first calls him his brother, That means he was a genuine fellow believer. But they were more than just believers, fellow spiritual believers and brothers. They had ministered together. They had had a lot of experience together. And so second, the apostle refers to Timothy as God's fellow worker. Now, some manuscripts have God's servant or God's minister there rather than fellow worker. But the idea is that Timothy was working with the Lord and for the Lord. And Paul tells us in a specific way by faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That was Timothy's ministry. And we saw in 1 Thessalonians 2 that sometimes it's called the gospel of God because the gospel message about salvation originated in the mind of God, the eternal mind of God. But it's also called the gospel of Christ because it centers on the Son. Salvation is provided in and through Christ. But either way, the point of describing Timothy this way was just to emphasize how valuable he was to Paul. But he's writing this to the church in Thessalonica. Timothy was valuable to Christians generally in this way. He was their brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel. So those were the circumstances that prompted Timothy's mission back to Thessalonica. That was the first facet that we can evaluate related to this mission, the circumstances of the mission. Here's the second facet. Let's note together the objective of the mission, the objective of the mission. There's some questions we need to answer about that. What was the the purpose Important questions about the objective. Here's one question we should ask. What was the essence of the objective? In other words, what was really at the heart of Paul going, Timothy going back? We find it in verse 2. To strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Let's clarify faith here. Sometimes it's used in Scripture to refer to the body of gospel truth that we believe. Jude 3 refers to it that way, that we have received the faith, the body of truth, the faith, the Christian faith. That's not the way it's used here. Here it refers to the Thessalonians' own personal 
belief in that body of truth, their faith. Now, like I've already indicated, it was a great church. It was a model church in many ways. But they were still a young church, spiritually young. And that meant that Paul knew they needed further guidance towards spiritual maturity, especially when it came to their faith. So it was that reality that led to this twofold ministry objective on Timothy's part. What was the essence of the objective? It's this. First, he says, to strengthen the Thessalonians' faith, to strengthen their faith. That means what you would expect, to reinforce it, to support it, to make it stronger. It's used that way in Scripture, to to point out the, the process of establishing someone deeper in their faith. Luke 22, verse 32, Jesus told Peter this in that interaction he had with Peter. He says, I've prayed for you that their your faith may not fail. That puts it in a, in a negative way, that it may not fail, that it would be strengthened, in other words. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, the Lord is faithful and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Strengthening is, a, is important for us. Many other verses about that. And the fact that it occurs often in the New Testament confirms that salvation then is not the end of our relationship with the Lord. We don't just come to Christ and become a follower of Christ and that's it. We must constantly be going on to be strengthened, to be established in our faith. So in Thessalonica, their faith needed to be stronger. And strong faith comes through knowing all the truth that God has revealed. It starts with that. No faith can be strong without knowledge, without understanding of the truth. So Timothy certainly would have when he got there, began to teach them more doctrine. Why? In order to strengthen them. Second, it says he was to encourage them. That New Testament term means literally to come alongside someone. That's the verb form. The noun form is translated helper or even counselor. It's used by Jesus in referring to the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 26. He told the disciples, but the helper... There's the noun form of this verb. The helper, the one who comes alongside, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. So back to our text, this is what Timothy would would do. He would function this way. He would come alongside the Thessalonian believers to help them grow in their faith by teaching them more of sound doctrine, but then helping them live in light of that sound doctrine. We need that. Coming to Christ is not the end, it's the beginning. It's a life from that point on of learning more about Him and His ways, learning more of the Word of God so that our faith is strengthened, so that we are encouraged. So in summary, Timothy's task was that. It was to help the Thessalonians' faith to to be solid and unwavering so that they could have the confidence and knowledge to know how to apply the truth to their lives. You know, you can call this a follow-up ministry then. Follow-up ministry. Paul was involved in follow-up ministry in many places where he traveled. 
Listen to Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. This is the kind of follow-up ministry he did. It says in Acts 14, he returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, doing what? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue. Acts 15, 41, he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Acts 18, 23, he passed through the Galatian region in Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So now Timothy would be doing that same thing, carrying on that same follow-up ministry, strengthening and encouraging the Thessalonians. That was his objective. There's another question to ask. What was the reason for this objective? Why was Paul so burdened about all this? Well, this mission objective, this strengthening and encouraging ministry, strengthening and encouraging the Thessalonians in their faith was necessary because of dangers to the faith, their faith that the Thessalonians were facing, and Paul knew that. There are two of these dangers are mentioned here. The same dangers we face, the dangers to our faith. Here's the reason for the objective, this danger, trials trials. He says in verse 3, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. That term afflictions refers to trials, tribulations, included would be persecution perhaps. All of that, trials, tribulation, persecution, afflictions, that was part of the church's experience there in Thessalonica because they lived in a fallen world. Our world brings many afflictions, many disappointments, many difficulties, and it is these difficulties then that end up being the the toughest test of our faith. There's a danger. Paul mentions it here. The danger is becoming disturbed due to the trials. Disturbed, that word means to be shaken. It means to be disquieted. You could translate it unsettled. So instead of becoming unsettled, these Thessalonians needed to grow in their spiritual stability, and therefore Timothy's mission was to strengthen the Thessalonians so they would be just that, stable, firm, unmoved from their faith, regardless of the trials they were going through. By the way, Timothy is carrying this burden for them all the time while he was experiencing his own afflictions. You'll see that in verse 7. If you look down, he says, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction. What a pastor's heart he had. He was more concerned about the Thessalonians' spiritual well-being in the midst of their difficulties than he was about himself in the midst of his own trials. Well, on this topic of trials and afflictions, the apostle felt it necessary to remind them of something. Verse 3, For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. All the believers, missionaries included, should expect trials, tribulations, persecutions as a normal part of life. Listen to some of these verses. 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's one kind of affliction. John 16, 33, Christ told His disciples, In the world, 
you have tribulation. Not you may have, you have it. James 1 verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. doesn't say if, it says when. 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, not if, after, the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. The point is, the various kinds of afflictions, afflictions of all kinds, are not to be taken as something unusual for the believer. That is not the message taught by the health, wealth, prosperity teachers. Notice in our verse... Paul adds that important word, though. He says we've been destined for these kind of earthly difficulties. Destined. You know what that means? Afflictions, doesn't matter what kind, are no accident. They are an integral part of the life of the believer by the sovereign design of God. Nothing comes into our experience that is outside His sovereignty. It's said that way in Philippians 1.29. Listen carefully. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Granted, you were given this gift. This is not a gift you can return. My wife has returning things to Walmart down to a science, an art, really. Not this gift. Not what God has granted to us. 1 Peter 3.17 It is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. You're going to suffer. It's part of God's will. 1 Peter 4.19 Those also who suffer according to the will of God, here's what you should do, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. All of this about the normalcy of trials and the fact that it's part of the sovereignty of God, all of this is exactly what the missionaries had already taught the Thessalonians from the very beginning when they first went to that city. Look at verse 4. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And the tense of that verb, kept telling, is imperfect, and it means something like this. We repeatedly foretold you converts over and over that suffering affliction was a normal part of the Christian experience. Or you could say it this way, what they taught in Thessalonica when they got there. The missionaries repeatedly taught, even catechized, the new believers in the theology of suffering. The theology of suffering. It's a course they took them through. 
And that course, the theology of suffering, includes the fact that Christians will suffer. And it includes the fact of God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign over our suffering. And no doubt, when they taught the Thessalonians all of this about the fact of suffering, they would have started by giving them instruction about Christ's suffering. He was not spared from suffering. We know that they did that according to Acts 17. The apostolic team arrived in Thessalonica. It says there in Acts 17, they did what was Paul's custom. They went to the synagogue and they taught this, Acts 17, 2 and 3. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, the Jews in the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Messiah, is the Christ. Moreover, they would have taught them that Christ not only suffered himself, but by his suffering, we are given an example of how to suffer ourselves. Romans eight seventeen, we suffer with him. But listen especially to 1 Peter 2, 21. This statement is made in the, in the, in the context of of suffering that goes on in our lives. 1 Peter 2.21, you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. We are to look at how Christ suffered and seek to emulate him. So Paul was not addressing with those Thessalonians some sort of period of suffering that was just temporary. It was going to pass. He was not telling them what people say to one another today when people are not doing well. Oh, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to turn out okay. You know, I never tell people that. Sometimes I've even thinking, I don't think this is going to turn out so good. <laughs> he didn't say that to people. It's going to be all right. It's all going to work out. He didn't say it was going to be temporary and that somehow then your lives and the church would return to normality. What he taught them is normality is suffering. Normality is affliction. Normality is persecution. Listen to what the commentator Green said. This theology was a centerpiece in early Christian teaching. Unlike many muddled modern theologies that promise prosperity and the absence of trouble as the fruits of true faith. Many muddled modern theologies. Well, a final thought then is added at the end of the verse about all these afflictions and trials. He says in the end of verse 4, so it came to pass, as you know. In other words, you're in them. He's writing the letter to them. So prior to writing to the letter to them, the suffering had indeed become reality in their experience. And Paul was burdened about it. Trials for some people can derail them when it comes to their faith. Timothy, go strengthen them, encourage them so that their faith will persevere and be stable through the trials. Trials are a danger in that regard. There's another danger mentioned, a second one temptation. They face this temptation. And for a discussion of this danger, Paul first repeats what he's already said a few lines earlier. Look at verse 5. He's already said this, repeats it again. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, he's already said that, 
I also sent, meaning Timothy, to find out about your faith. When he sent Timothy, Paul did not know how the Thessalonians' faith was weathering the storms of the trials. But that wasn't the only danger. He says in verse 5, something else was burdening his heart for fear that the tempter might have tempted you. And the tempter, of course, is Satan. He is the very one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He is the one who still tempts believers today. Now, here's something interesting about this verb translated tempted here. In other places, it's translated tested or test. The word can be used either way as a test or a temptation, to test someone or to tempt someone. John 6 verse 6, it's used with the idea of testing the character of someone. John 6 verse 6, Jesus was saying all of this to test Philip. Same verb. God tests, He never tempts. Testing is for the purpose of bringing your faith to the surface. Temptation is seeking to destroy you. It can be temptation for a particular sin. Listen to Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And the idea is even in the same way that you're trying to help somebody else overcome temptation. Guard your own heart. We get tempted to commit various sins. However, the temptation Paul was referring to when he wrote this to the Thessalonians was not just the temptation to commit just any kind of sin, but rather to commit the sin of apostasy, that is, falling away from Christ. In other words, what was at stake in the apostles' heart was the very salvation of the Thessalonians due to Satan applying pressure to his converts to somehow get them to abandon their faith. Satan does seek to get people to do that. True believers won't. But that's part of his activity, satanic activity. Paul knew all about satanic activity. I have already said, chapter 2, verse 18. Satan had hindered Paul and his associates from going to that city. So now, Paul's thinking, Satan was potentially tempting the Thessalonians. You see, that's the business that Satan's in. It's on his card, business card. Destroyer of souls. That's his business. He and his demons... And no doubt, he and his demons are our great enemy, which is why Paul wrote this famous passage in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. Ephesians 6, verse 11 and 12, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, part of our what we fight is demonic activity in this world around us and how they operate through the false ideologies and perspectives and opinions and, and teachings and heresies that they propagate in this world. 
That's his soul-destroying business that he's in. One commentator pressed on that a little bit. I was reading this week, and he said, you know, he, he basically utilizes three approaches. It starts with trying to keep people from even coming to Christ. Okay, that's, that would be one of Satan's strategies. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 affirms that. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. On the other hand, there might be someone starting to show some initial interest in the gospel. He hates that. So he'll try to assault that person to try to destroy that interest. In essence, that's what's happening in Matthew 13 in that parable about the soil and the seed and the sower. Matthew 13, 20 and 21, one of those soils, the one on whom seed was sown on the soil rocky places... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. In other words, has some interest in it, yet he has no firm root in himself. He's not truly converted. It's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises, he immediately falls away. It wasn't real. Satan knows that can happen. He loves to use that strategy, this one commentator was saying. And finally, this writer even pointed out that If he can't stop somebody from believing the gospel, if he can't stop somebody from from staying interested in the gospel, he'll certainly strive to weaken the faith of those who do believe. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. No wonder Peter wrote to us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to carry on his business, which is what? Seeking someone to devour the destruction of their soul. So here's Paul in Athens all alone, knowing all about trials, knowing all about satanic activity and temptation, what he didn't know was whether or not the tempter solicitations were being successful in Thessalonica. If Satan was successful, Paul was concerned about what that meant concerning his own work there amongst them. Look at verse 5, it ends, and our labor would be in vain. That word labor means toil and work that is wearisome, it's hard He's not talking about making tents, though that labor was hard as well. He's talking about the hard work associated with disseminating the gospel. So if Satan has succeeded in his assault on the Thessalonians, Paul knew that his hard gospel labor among them would be all for nothing, he says. It all depended on whether they had abandoned their new loyalty to Christ or whether their faith had stayed firm and stable in the face of trials, in the face of temptations, so that they endured. And not knowing the answer to that was more than he could bear. He was concerned about them, even to the point of willing to give Timothy up to go. Well, fast forward, we know that Timothy did go to Thessalonica. He did strengthen and encourage their faith. Paul eventually left Athens, headed on to Corinth, 
south to Corinth from where he wrote this letter to Thessalonica. Silas and Timothy eventually caught up with him again there. Acts 18, 1 and 5 say this, After these things he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth, Corinth, verse 5, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Started all over again. It appears, based on what the rest of this letter says, it appears that Timothy not only brought Paul a a report, we'll see it next time, but he also brought some questions from the Thessalonians. It appears in chapter 4 and 5 that Paul is answering some of those questions and that that Timothy even mentioned some concerns and needs, spiritual needs that the Thessalonians still had. And so Paul addresses those things coming up in the letter. But we get the point today. Paul's great concern was the state of their faith. Were the trials, were the temptations of life going to derail them and cause them to not grow spiritually? It was a good church, but a young church. It was possible their spiritual growth could be impeded. And that is true for us as well today. So I want you to ask yourself these questions. Are you growing spiritually? I asked that in the first service, and there was a little child who yelled out, Yes! (laughs) So I had to stop for a moment. (laughs) Are you growing spiritually? Are you becoming more and more grounded in doctrine and therefore more and more spiritually stable? Are you living in light of the doctrine you say you believe? You see, all of that should be your greatest concern. It's our greatest concern for you and for ourselves. The state of our faith. And as I explained, this this faith in this, this context has to do with personal belief in the gospel. So that does raise the subject once again. What is genuine faith then? What faith are we talking about? After all, Satan believes in Jesus. We'd all agree that he's not saved from his sin. So just as a matter of review, I want to speak again quickly to answer the question, what is saving faith? There is a faith that is not saving faith. Saving faith is the kind of faith that God gives to a person. It's a gift. You can't earn it. God gives it. But this saving faith that He gives has certain characteristics. One characteristic is this. It's an objective faith. There's data you must believe. There are facts to believe about who Jesus is and what He did. That He was God incarnate, God in human form, and He was born of a virgin, and He lived on this earth. And in His life, He perfectly obeyed God's law, what we are required to do and could never do. He did it in our place. And then He willingly went to the cross to suffer death, taking our failure upon Himself, the failure of His people to perfectly obey, to pay the debt of that sin. All that happened approximately 2,000 years ago, that death outside the gates of Jerusalem, all factual information, objective truth. And he was 
buried and after three days in the tomb, on the third day was raised back to life again, ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns over everything. That resurrection proved who he was, that he's God, and that his death and life were effective. It is an objective faith. You're believing something. It is a trusting faith. Again, these are not steps that you do or work on your part, but if it's the kind of faith that God gives, it is a trusting faith. You are trusting in Christ alone and what he has done and not self. It's a repentant faith because before coming to Christ, we're trusting in ourselves in some way. And we're having, maintaining a love, a love affair with the world and sin in some way. It's a repentant faith because we recognize sin is what it is. It's sin and rebellion against God. It's a repentant faith because I'm turning from trusting and loving self to seek to grow in what it means to trust Christ. And it is a submissive faith because Christ is the Lord. It's an understanding that He's God and we are not and that by coming to Him, I'm coming to follow Him all the days of my life as my Lord. The saving faith that God gives is an objective faith, a trusting faith, a repentant faith, a submissive faith. That's just its characteristics. We can recognize genuine faith by seeing those elements in someone's life. And it is that objective element that we actually conclude our service with today by remembering at the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for reminding us once again what our great need is, that we need to be growing in our faith. And Lord, we've experienced this, the testing of our faith, trials and afflictions do that, and some are tested more than others in this fallen world. But all are tested at some level. We're tested by temptation all the time. So, Lord, we pray that everything that we hear in the teaching of the Word in a sermon like this or in the classes or Sunday school classes or in our personal study and prayer time, that all of that would be toward the objective of strengthening and encouraging our faith so that we persevere and endure in our trust of the Lord. Father, we do fail at times. We're grateful that even that failure was taken upon Christ when he died on the cross to pay the debt of that as well. I do pray for those who may be here that have never expressed true saving faith. Lord, we pray that you would gift them with that, this kind of faith that says, I want to follow Christ. I need forgiveness of my sin. I want to follow him and serve him. Lord, take me. I'm yours. Open their hearts to trust in Christ alone. Father, I pray now that as we remember the objective truths about Christ and what he's done for us, that our hearts will be filled with joy and gratitude for what he's done for us. In our Savior's name, amen.